From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we take a pilgrimage to the heart of the American criminal justice system with our guest, Mark Osler. A former federal prosecutor, he now advocates for clemency and mercy, rooting his ideals in the Christian faith. In this hour, we talk about his new book, Prosecuting Jesus, and his work to abolish the death penalty. Stay tuned. Hey friends, before we begin the show, I wanted to take a moment and talk to you about a new podcast from my friend, the Reverend Kat Banakas. It's called The Holy Holy Podcast, and each episode, Kat takes this big question like dying or careers or how to be single and Christian, and she talks about it with experts from across the nation, sometimes from across the world, and then at the end of the show, she puts it to a three-person panel that includes a representative of the Muslim faith, the Jewish faith, and the Christian faith. It's always a fantastic conversation. I always learn something when I listen to it, and I just love the fact that she's doing it. So I hope that you'll take a look for the Holy Holy Podcast. You can find it through iTunes. You can find it at holyholypodcast.com. You can also find it through our website, csec.org. So that's the Holy Holy Podcast with the Reverend Kat Banakas. Give it a listen. I know, I know you're going to love it. Thanks. Okay, here we go with the show. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and today we're speaking to Mark Osler. He's law professor at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota, where he's Robert and Marion Short Chair of Law. He advocates for sentencing and clemency policies rooted in principles of human dignity. He's a former federal prosecutor, and he played a role in striking down the mandatory 100 to 1 ratio between crack and powder cocaine in the federal sentencing guidelines. He, w- he did that by winning the case of Spears versus United States at the U.S. Supreme Court. He has a 2009 book called Jesus on Death Row, published by Abingdon Press, and just recently he's come out with a new book called Prosecuting Jesus, and that's what we'll be talking about today. Mark Osler, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, I, I've read the book, and I'm fascinated by, by what you did, and I want to get to that, but before we do, I'd like to spend a little bit of time kind of talking about your background. Now, as I understand it, uh, you, you were raised in a household where... Uh, you were not necessarily pushed into church, but someone along the way said this guy should be in uh, should be put into a church. Could you tell us a little bit about how that happened? Yeah, I, I, it's my parents told me about it later. I, uh, elementary school teacher told them, you know, you should you take Mark to church. They asked uh, the teacher asked, and they said no. And they said the teacher said maybe you should. He talks a lot about God in class, and it was a public school, so I suspect that. Uh, she was hoping for a, a different outlet for my theological inquiries. And so uh, they started taking me to church, and uh, I found it to be a fascinating place, and I still do every time. I know that you have been in a number of different denominations, and so just quickly, so that our listeners sort of know the gamut that you're coming from, kind of what is that spectrum of denominations you've been involved in? Sure. I uh, was raised in a congregational church, 
Then when I went off to college, I discovered the Society of Friends and worshipped as a Quaker for quite a spell there and lived in Waco, Texas for 10 years from 2000 to 2010 and attended a great Baptist church in Waco, 7th and James Baptist Church. In 2010, moved up to Minnesota and there I worship as an Episcopalian. So, yeah, I, I guess I have not been loyal to any one denomination, but I think I do have a deeper loyalty that connects all those things. Do you see, looking at that spread of, of different denominational affiliations, is there a through line? If, if you could find one sort of common piece that, that links all of them, what would that be? You know, I think one thing that you find in all those places, at least at this point in time, is a lack of certainty. That, that, you know, Quakers have queries. They focus on responding to questions that the, the Baptist church, I was a part of Baptists, root themselves in their own understanding of the, the Bible, soul competence. The Episcopalian church historically wasn't that way, but it is now. It's full of people who are questioning and wondering and, and coming to answers that sometimes are at different points and having to resolve that. And I think that's where I'm comfortable that I, where I'm uncomfortable is when there is a sense of absolute certainty. For many years, you were a prosecutor. What is that? What what role is that within the legal system? Yeah, I, I was a prosecutor for five years in Detroit from 1995 to 2000 in the federal courts. And at that time in Detroit, uh, there was a lot of different kinds of crimes to address. I, I uh, had cases against Chinese immigrant smugglers, you know, human traffickers, against heroin, international heroin traffickers, against people who were supplying material support to terrorism. And a lot of what I did was little crack cases where you had, um, you know, not that much crack, five grams, 10 grams, uh, but there were big mandatory sentences at that time. I believed in it, though. I was, I was a person who, at least at the start, believed in the mandatory minimum sentences because I saw the danger in crack itself, what it did to the social fabric um, in different communities. You know, as the prosecutor, you have a broader interest in, in justice. When I had cases that involved victims, it was easier to believe in it, um, and I still do, that there's people who need to be deterred, who need to be incapacitated. There's people who are sexual offenders who commit rape over and over, and we have to incapacitate those people to protect society. I believe in, in punishment, and I believe in incapacitation. But the part of being a prosecutor that uh, is difficult is when there's not a victim, when really what we're addressing is a market. The other thing as a prosecutor that, that, that people forget about sometimes is your role in the courtroom, that, that you're standing there just a few feet away from a person, a person with a background, with a family that's sitting behind you, and you're telling a court that you want them to be in prison for the next 20 years, to miss all of their kids' childhood, to miss the graduation, to miss the wedding of their children, to have their marriage fall apart, to have their parents die while they're incarcerated. And you look in their eyes and say that. That is a deep and emotional exercise. And to do it right, to remain emotionally engaged, is draining. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Mark Osler. He's professor of law at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota. 
And he's a graduate of the College of William and Mary and Yale Law School. And he's a former federal prosecutor whose work has consistently confronted the problem of inflexibility in sentencing and corrections. So you mentioned a moment ago that uh, when you first got involved as a prosecutor, you, you were sort of a true believer in the process. And then you, you have then said uh, that something began to shift. I'm wondering if, if you can succinctly tell us where that shift began to happen. Yeah, there were, there were a couple of things that, that coincided really. And, and one at a faith level I think is pretty important. I spent a lot of time with Quakers and there was a phrase that they used which was the light of God and the light of God being in every person. And I held that close even through those years as a prosecutor. When I went into a courtroom, the light of God was in the defendant. It was in the victims. It was in the family of the defendant. It was in the judge. It was in the defense attorney who was opposing me at every turn. And that made everything deeper and more important. And the other thing, faith-wise, was that for whatever reason, I was in a Bible study, I guess, and we were talking about John 8. You know, there you have the stoning of the adulteress. And we were talking about it, and I realized that everybody was talking about it from the perspective of Jesus, that we hear these these gospel stories, and we're always Jesus. How arrogant is that? And, of course, I was too. I was, I was saying, you know, well, the important part is saying go and sin no more, that we have to correct sin. And, and then I, I had this epiphany that I'm the guy with the rock. And in a very direct way as a prosecutor, I'm the person – with the rock. That was my role in the drama. Or I'm the adulteress, but I'm certainly not Jesus. And at that same time that that faith was leading me, I think, in a different direction, I had a series of sentencings on these little crack cases where uh, the defense attorney, um, there was a couple defense attorneys, uh, they, they used to make impassioned sentencing arguments in mandatory minimum cases. So in other words, it wasn't going to make any difference. The sentence had to be imposed under law. And so I'd go in and it would be you know, a typical case. And this is a specific case I remember. 18-year-old, first offense. He's got 5.3 grams of crack on him and there's a gun under a seat cushion in an abandoned house where he is. So it's five years for the crack, five years for the gun stacked on top of that, a 10-year mandatory term with no parole because we don't have that in the federal system for an 18-year-old on a first offense. And I'd go in and, and say, Your Honor, this is, this is a mandatory case. You went to trial. We convicted him in 10 years. I, I didn't even have to bring the file with me. This was an easy task on that day. Uh, and then the judge would turn to Richard Helfrich or Andrew Densimo and, and say, Are you going to make your usual futile speech? And they would. Uh, I, I remember Andrew Densimo's in particular because he would talk about the African-American community in Detroit, his community, which I'm not a part of. And, and what this did, um, what would happen to that kid? What happens – what's the 27-year-old who gets out going to be like? What happens to his family? Uh, what – is this going to solve a problem? And there's something in particular I remember him saying, which was that we can drive by that place right now and there's someone else in there driving – selling crack. You know, and then she turned back to me, and I'd say, yeah, it's a mandatory sentence, and off they'd go. Um, but over time, his speech worked on me. It's one of the, I, it really convinced me over time, reflecting on it, of how we change our minds about things. 
we don't usually signal it to the world. It happens internally and it happens because of stories that we experience or hear, not because of arguments. So, you know, I, I left and I took up teaching. I, I got a job as a professor down at Baylor and started writing about that 101 ratio that I've been imposing. You mentioned in your intro um, the Spears case and when that came down, what that told judges is they could pick a different ratio than 100 to 1 under the guidelines. It was following up a, another case called Kimbrough where the Supreme Court kind of went that way but didn't make it clear enough and so this clarified it. And I heard from a lot of judges after that and I got a call from one judge in Detroit, Art Tarnow, who said, oh, sorry, I read your case. You know, I, I can't believe that's you. You know, you, you were kind of hard. And I told him the story I just told you about the futile speeches. And he asked a great question, which was, did you ever tell Andrew? And the answer was no. This was 13 years later. So I called him up and said, you know, I don't know if you remember, but you used to do this and here's what happened. And I, I often tell this story to advocates because sometimes it feels like our speeches are futile. We don't know who's listening. And I mean that changed the law. But it wasn't me doing it so much as it was the futile speech doing it that was made a long time ago. I've been thinking about what Jesus said about praying for our enemies. And I wonder as a, as a person who's been through this process, uh, I'm sure that you meditate also on that, that requirement that we, we have an obligation to those that have wronged us that's different than the normal – one of, of vengeance. How do, how do you hear that now as a person who's been both a, a prosecutor and has, has now walked away from that role? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it comes back to that sense of the light of God being in everybody. Because once you see the world that way, there are no enemies. There's just different manifestations of God. And that's a challenging thing when you look at what some people do. But that that's the challenge we're given. I mean, look, the Gospels give us all kinds of really hard challenges. Don't get divorced even when things are really hard. And so the fact that it's a hard challenge that's in the Gospels doesn't mean it's not authentic. And and that sense of trying to see the best in your enemies, which is part of love, um, is is a real challenge. But it's it's a genuine one. It's an authentic one. And the ironic thing is now I've been doing clemency work. And trying to work to get people doing life terms for crack uh, offenses out of prison and have had some success. I met one yesterday, uh, a man that uh, just received clemency in April and I'd, I'd done a small bit of work on his case. And it's incredible to, you know, hug that person. And these are, you know, these are people who committed the same offenses that I was prosecuting back at the time that these people went to prison. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Mark Osler. He's a professor of law at the University of St. Thomas Law School in Minnesota. He's a graduate of the College of William and Mary and Yale Law School. Professor Osler is a former federal prosecutor whose work has consistently confronted the problem of inflexibility in sentencing and corrections. We'll be back in a moment. Hello, David Dalt here. You may be wondering why we take time out of the podcast to have these little minute-long breaks with the crazy music underneath. The answer is simple. We are trying to design the podcast so that it pays for itself, and so these are places where someday we will have some advertising. Now, let's say that you have been interested in getting into some sort of podcasting advertising platform where you want to promote your product. 
we would be a wonderful mid-market solution for you, uh, particularly if you want to reach an educated audience that really, really likes stuff about religion. Uh, so that's what this is here for. So if you would like to learn more about advertising with us, you can go to advertisecast.com or you can contact us through our website. We would love, love, love to work with you. Thank you always for listening. Okay, back to the show. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Mark Osler. He's Robert and Marion Short Chair of Law at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota. His work advocates for sentencing and clemency policies rooted in principles of human dignity. Well, a moment ago before the break, you mentioned the word clemency. And I wonder for our listeners if you could tell us what the word clemency means. Um, you know, it's a... Legally, what clemency means is a manifestation of the pardon power in the Constitution. And there's equivalents in every state. And the pardon power, for the most part, plays out in two ways. One is by a pardon. And a pardon is usually given to people who have completed the prison term. And it restores certain rights, the right to possess a gun, to vote, uh, to serve on a jury. Uh, commutation is a different part of the pardon power. It's under the pardon power. And that's to shorten a sentence. And we see that that's what President Obama has used um, in really a historic way to lower the prison population and particularly targeting it, people doing long terms for narcotics. And so you say President Obama. So is it a president only that has the power of clemency and, and to make this sort of action happen or can governors do it? Can judges do it? Who has that power? It is the power of the president alone. It's unchecked. And it's a, it's a remarkable thing that that power exists, that the, the framers left that in the Constitution, a power of kings, because mostly they tried to get rid of that and create a different system. But this one they left in. And, and what's fascinating about that is it is – the Constitution is a secular document. Um, I'm not one of those people that says that you know the Constitution establishes a, a Christian state. I just don't see that. I kind of see it cutting the other way. But that – part of it, the pardon power, that uh, principle of mercy and ensuring that that continues, that's a religious principle. That's a faith principle. That's something that we find in many faiths. And even uh, going back to the Romans, one of one of the things that I really treasure is I bought a coin and it has on its face Clementia, the Roman goddess of clemency. And I would... I was shocked when I bought it because I found this, that this existed, that, that the Romans had a goddess of clemency and they put her on a coin. I thought that was so great given what I was doing. Um, and so I went on eBay and I found one for, for 40 bucks. And I was shocked by this. I thought that it must be a fake. And so I went to a coin dealer and he said, no, they just – they made you know hundreds of thousands of these. And that's kind of overwhelming to me that this, this ethic, this principle is so ancient and so rooted in, in our Western civilization that that the Romans minted you know hundreds of thousands of coins with the picture of the goddess of clemency on it. What's interesting to me, you mentioned uh, earlier in the conversation your time with the Quakers, and I'm aware that in the in the history of incarceration, you know, we we have jails and dungeons and prisons, all as places where people are simply locked away. And it was the Quakers that argued instead that what we need are penitentiaries, a place where a person can go and be penitent to think about their crimes and to repent of their crimes and to then re-enter society afterwards as a rehabilitated citizen. And so 
what you're talking about with clemency, what you're talking about with the work that you're, work that you're doing seems to be rooted in that notion that people can be rehabilitated. Am I hearing that correctly? Yes. And the great thing is that you can go and meet those people. Uh, that if you don't believe that rehabilitation is, is possible, um, you can counter that by going and meeting the people who have served long prison terms, who have come out and who have done good. Now, of course, there's people who have come out and done bad too. Uh, so when I say rehabilitation is possible, I mean it is possible, not that it's uh, you know uh, something we can assume. It's hard work, but it is done and it has been done and it should give us all hope. What is it in our current system that needs to change so that more people would begin to have this possibility of rehabilitation, of reentering society, of, of becoming uh, fully engaged citizens again? Yeah, there's a couple of things. I mean, of course, the, the, what we look at very often is housing and, and employment. Um, and we're seeing real gains on employment, that there is much more of an openness. There's some companies that have committed to hiring people who are returning citizens from prison. And in terms of housing, we've seen some changes there. The Obama administration has done some good work in terms of allowing uh, – broadening the ability of people returning from prison to, to use public housing, for example, and have a place to live. Where things go wrong is when they return and, and there isn't a structure of support. Um, and so that that's really two of the keys. Now, one of the things that goes unexamined because it's within a secular system is the spiritual needs of people who are returning. Those who come back to a faith community generally have it much easier. And there's a reason. It's because the spiritual need is fed. There's a sense of accountability within that community and often that community is going to provide employment and housing as well. And so when uh, – you know, I'm, I'm fortunate enough that some of the people I've sought clemency for are getting it now and we come up with a plan for how they're going to reenter. And when there is a faith community for them to enter, even if it's not their own, even if we view them the way we do Syrian refugees where we need – they've been through a traumatic experience – they need to be taken in and supported in some ways that that, that we don't for others, um, that they have a much higher chance of success, I think. Now, you have been active in trying to change the culture of some congregations and churches to think about what it means to uh, have the power to put someone away for life, to have the power to put someone away for multiple decades, and to think about that in particular in the context of the way that Jesus was treated during his trial and during his uh, his punishment. Yeah, and it goes back to another moment. I mean, not all moments are equal, and I realize I'm talking about you know these these epiphanies, but that's that's the way sometimes things happen. Is we don't put them together consciously in our mind; instead, they appear before us. And there was a day in Waco, Texas, that I woke up on a Sunday morning and opened the newspaper, and there was a story about an execution. Not unusual in Texas at that time to to have there be a story about an execution. And in the lead, and this is very common, they describe what the last meal was because we're obsessed with last meals. When, when Carla Faye Tucker was executed, the website crashed because so many people wanted to find out what her last meal was. She didn't take one, by the way. But um, And so the lead was about the last meal of this condemned man. And I remember thinking about that. Gosh, we're, that's an odd thing to, to have such focus on. And then I went to church and I, I went to – the Baptist Church in, in Waco, and it happened to be the, Waco, the the Sunday for Eucharist. And 
So I took the host in my hand and I remember holding it in the palm of my hand and thinking, this is the same thing. This is the cupcake and the cheeseburger and the Dr. Pepper. This is the last meal of a man who knew he was condemned to die at the hand of other men. Um, and that – it took me a long time to sort that out, that on the one hand, we've got these people who are being executed. And you know, every once in a while, I think some of them are innocent. But most of them are guilty. They did these incredibly heinous things we could never imagine doing. I could never go in and, and shoot a police officer or, 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 or drown a child or some of the things that these people actually did. But our point of connection with them is food, that we look at that picture or we imagine the cheeseburger and the cupcake and the Dr. Pepper, and that's our point of connection. And with Christ, for those of us who are believers, here is someone who – lived up to all those challenges he set out, who lived this this mirror image of, of, of the other person that is is impossible for us to imagine doing. But our connection is that food. And he did that intentionally. He created that. And he, he I mean he made it explicit. When you visit those in prison, you visit me. Not when you visit those in prison who are innocent, you visit me, or you visit the political prisoner. It's when you visit those in prison, when you visit those people who did the horrible things, you visit me. Talk about challenging. Um, but that's the challenge he laid out. If you're just joining us, we're speaking today with Mark Osler. He is professor of law at the University of St. Thomas Law School in Minnesota. He's a graduate of the College of William and Mary and Yale Law School. Professor Osler is a former federal prosecutor whose work has consistently confronted the problem of inflexibility in sentencing and corrections. He's the author of the 2009 book, Jesus on Death Row, and we're also discussing his most recent book, the 2016 book, Prosecuting Jesus. So you had this moment where you thought, okay, I have this last meal like this person is having the last meal. I'm, I'm remembering Jesus' last meal. And that led to a series of steps that became almost a, a theatrical reenactment of the trial of Jesus. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, yeah. Although, you know, in terms of it being theatrical, there's no script. My primary collaborator in doing this is a public defender here in Chicago named Gene Bishop. We've had on the show before. And, you know, Gene's a real-life public defender. I was a real-life prosecutor. And because we're both trial lawyers, um, we not only don't have a script, we don't tell each other what the other person's going to do. I don't know what witnesses she's going to call. I don't know if she's going to put Jesus on the stand. Um, and I've been pretty surprised sometimes at how things turn out. But the project uh, generally described was that we went to death penalty states, tried to get in front of conservative audiences and presented the sentencing phase of the trial of Jesus under state law. Now, what does that mean for those that are unfamiliar with the way that trials are structured? What is a sentencing phase? Yeah, the a capital case, one where the death penalty is in play, is different than other cases because there's, there's two parts. The first is determining guilt or not guilty and the second is whether the person will be put to death or not. Um, sometimes it's treated different ways in other types of cases, but they're both considered phases of the trial. And so we just do the second one because we don't want to get all tangled up in, you know, was Jesus guilty of a, a modern um, uh, capital crime or anything like that. So we, we skip to the second one and then put it in front of uh, these audiences. And then we divide them into groups of 12 and have them deliberate to a verdict as the jury. And that's really where uh, I think 
whatever works, works. And so if a person is participating in this from the congregational side, are they are they signing on to a multi-day or multi-week ordeal or does this happen in just a number of hours? And what is asked of them particularly as participants? Yeah, um, the, it takes about two, two and a half hours all told actually. And so they're sworn in as jurors. Uh, they they watch the trial and then they form their juries and, and come to a verdict and then we receive all the verdicts. And you know there of course can be a lot of juries in, in some of these audiences. And it's troubling to them. It's troubling. I, I, I can't say that we get done with this and people come up and say, oh, I changed my mind about the death penalty. But people walk away troubled. And you know what's interesting is, is so often when Jesus encounters people, they walk away troubled. They don't walk I – mean, sometimes they walk away full of joy, but a lot of times they walk away troubled. And maybe that's what we need to shoot for is we need to trouble the water. Because if you think about anything in your own life where you changed your mind, you probably weren't at Thanksgiving dinner and your aunt was going on and on about something and you said, gosh, you're right. I, you know, I'm not voting for Obama, right? That's not how anybody ever changes their mind. Uh, you didn't pull up in traffic behind a bumper sticker and read it and think, oh, that bumper sticker is correct and I've been wrong all these years. Usually we encounter something, a story, someone's life, some change in our own life that troubles us. And that troubling leads us to process to a point to where we've changed our mind. That's what happened to me with my feelings about sentencing, for example. If you're just joining us, we're speaking today with Mark Osler. He's the author of the 2009 book, Jesus on Death Row, and the recent book, Prosecuting Jesus. And that's what we're discussing today. Now, I realize that you're you're observing this from the standpoint of one participant. The, the You're playing the role of the prosecutor. But I wonder if... If in your debriefing of, of the participants or in just casual conversations greeting them afterwards, you have gotten a sense or can characterize for us what that trouble is that sits with the participants who end up forming these these mock juries. I think a lot of them are struck by the fact that they either did or came close to voting to execute Jesus. And if they can execute Jesus, how easy is it to execute someone who's innocent? someone who shouldn't be executed, that the dynamics of the group can be so important. Sometimes they're troubled by even being asked the question in the first place. And that's good too because if it's hard to be a juror in a death penalty case that is is contrived as this is in a way, think about – and they do think about this – what we're doing to the people who are jurors in real death penalty cases. Uh, Because I lived in Texas for 10 years, I knew a lot of people who were on death penalty juries and they were marked by it. There were, there were some people that would tell you, oh, it was no problem. But a lot of people would tell you, I carry that with me every day. And you think about it. We're paying people $40 a day to sit 10 feet away from someone and say, we've decided that you will die. That – no uh, – there's no – there shouldn't be any question that that would trouble all of us if we were in that experience. And so even giving people a glimpse of it I think has that effect. Now, I'm currently Catholic, having been Quaker for a number of years, and one of the things that we do every Easter during the Triduum is we reenact those last days and last moments of Jesus. And there's a point where the congregation is playing a role as one of the voices in this drama, and the congregation is bidden by the script to shout out, crucify him, crucify him, as if we're there asking for the head of Jesus or for the death of Jesus at that moment. 
is what you're doing in this recreation the same as that or is is this in some way hitting a different emotional point than people are feeling when they're simply mouthing those words? I, I think it is a different emotional point because this is one – it's easy to see the Gospels and the events of the Gospels as a play, a TV show, um, almost a, a fantasy world where we observe – it's like Game of Thrones – where you know there's these people interacting in ways that are unimaginable and and it's it's a diversion from our ordinary lives but that's not what they're for <laughs> they're for integrating with our lives to to see these eternal questions and issues of things like forgiveness and 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 mercy and judgment um in the modern day and frankly they're set out in a way that it's it's so easy to do that if we if we choose to Earlier in the conversation, you said that it's always easy in the stories to imagine that we're in the place of Jesus. And something about this practice of going through this moot court, this this sentencing phase, puts them in a different role. It puts them away from, from thinking of themselves as Jesus and instead puts them in the role of the people that are putting Jesus to death. Is that a fair characterization? That's right. That, that you know, suddenly we're the mob. And we're always the mob. Uh, you know, it's, it is it is so striking that uh, we we hear these stories and Jesus is is teaching, and we don't see ourselves as the people sitting in the dirt, or the woman being thrown to the dirt, about to be struck by rocks. That's who we are. We're not we're not Jesus, um, and and that is a, a maybe just that shift in perspective is what's troubling. Now, when people are shifted into that register and then you greet them afterwards, you say that they do they do they tell you what this was like, or do you more see it on their face? Like how how are you aware of how this has troubled them? Yes, I mean we we certainly have talked to people as they're going out, and we've had a couple chances to go back later and talk to people. In fact, we we did this in 2012 at Fourth Presbyterian here in Chicago. And I, you know, I'm going to speak there tonight, and I'm sure I'll hear from a lot of people that uh, that we're at the trial, and I've already talked to a couple um, who were at the trial, and that is uh, that's often what we hear is is that was darker and more troubling than I expected. Have you found any sort of consistency in the experience, or has it always been sort of a new, unscripted kind of event that that surprises you continuously? Yeah, it always surprises me. I walk away different every time. Sometimes there's a feeling of despair. And it, you have to remember that my role in this is talking about the danger of Jesus in a negative way, that he's said I'm here to bring the sword and I'm here to change your world fundamentally. To say those things affects you. And I, I sometimes walk away into the dark. You know, everyone else is kind of gathered and talking and recapping. And sometimes I just go outside and sit on a bench because it's overwhelming. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Mark Osler. He's professor of law at the University of St. Thomas Law School in Minnesota. We'll be back in a moment. Hello, Dave Dalt here. Earlier in the show, I talked about podcast monetization through advertising. But let's say that you as a listener don't have anything to sell right now, but you still want to support things not seen. We can make that happen. 
Here's how it works. You could go to our thingsnotseenradio.com website or csec.org and make a one-time donation. It would be tax-deductible, and that would be wonderful. But you can also support us on an ongoing basis through a platform called Patreon. Now, here's how that works. You set the amount, $1, $5, $10, $1,000, whatever an episode of Things Not Seen is worth to you. And every time that we release a new episode, you would be charged on your credit card for that amount. You set it. You set how long you do it. It's completely up to you, but it really would help us. So please go to our website or go to patreon.com and set it up. And we thank you always for listening. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're talking today with Mark Osler about his new book, Prosecuting Jesus. He's the Robert and Marion Short Chair of Law at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota. He advocates for sentencing and clemency policies rooted in principles of human dignity. We're talking about a project that he did with Gene Bishop over a number of years in which he put Jesus on trial. You mentioned before the break that it's your job to communicate that Jesus is a threat. How do you get good Bible-believing Christians who are showing up at a church to even think about the fact that Jesus could be a threat? I mean, Jesus is like our pet lapdog in some ways, theologically now. How do you get them to actually get to the point where they might even conceivably think about putting this person to death? Well, first I had to get myself there. I had to find something in the Gospels that I've been making my argument – that cut against what I believed. I, and I, I found that pretty early on, which is that I've always been a pacifist. And I, I saw Jesus as backing me up <laughs> in my view. But one of the things I turned up as I dug into the Gospels and, and I was viewing it as evidence in this case was at the Last Supper, two of his followers pull out swords and he says, it is enough. And then you know, later that same night, Peter lops off Malchus's ear, the, the slave, with one of those swords. Jesus didn't take the swords from them. And it's hard to reconcile belief in pacifism with Jesus allowing that to, to go forward. So there's something that, that challenged me. And so I tried to find other things like that that would, that would be a different and, and, and harder perspective in some ways. That especially for people like me. I'm a, I'm a teacher of the law, someone who's consistently condemned in the Gospels. That's not who Jesus chose. You know, he chose fishermen. And so one of the arguments I make in my closing a lot in some of the cases has been, you know, he is going to tear down our history, our heritage. He chooses not those who are literate, but he chooses illiterates to follow him and to continue his legacy. What does that tell you? Why is he picking these people? We're going to lose our own heritage if we choose this. And there's truth in that. We are going to lose our heritage. We're going to lose some of our cultural customs. We're going to lose our affinities for some of the things that that we love dearly if we take Christ seriously. Now, you you mentioned that he would pick fishermen and and people who were untutored and unlearned. You actually invited people to inhabit some of these characters as witnesses. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what that was like. Yeah, it it took us – and in fact, I thought that was – Kind of a, a mundane role was picking people to be witnesses at the start, but it turned out to be anything but because the perspectives were strikingly different. I'll tell you about two of them. I asked one of my students, Phil Steger, to play Peter. 
Peter's a great witness for the prosecution because he knows everything. You know, he was always there and he is a straightforward recounter of things. And so he's for the prosecution, you know, anything Jesus said or did, pretty much asked Peter. So he's my main witness. Uh, we're getting ready to do it and we just kind of as a warm-up, we did it at my school at St. Thomas. And it was – we did it in the big courtroom. The board of governors came to attend and Phil shows up and he's wearing jeans and a hoodie. And I said, Phil, you know, we're, we're in court. Yeah, is my witness. I gotta ask you, can't you wear a suit? You know, that's that's no, I don't have that. I thought, uh oh, I've got a I've got a method actor here, but he did such a great job. And I'd I'd ask him questions that I thought were, you know, just really hard and, and putting Jesus in a bad light. And he he was enthusiastic about everything, the way Peter was. You know, yes, the master said that. And everyone was astonished and troubled. It was incredible. It was so true to the Peter that we read about, but we we don't want to really see because that's who we are at our best. I mean the best we can hope for is to be Peter and almost all of us fail at that. I know I do. Um, there was another time that Jean called a witness I didn't know about. So this was a new witness and she decided she'd call the woman from John 8 who was saved from the stoning by Christ. She didn't call as a witness or use as a witness, you know, some 23-year-old law student or anything like that. Uh, she asked a, a 55-year-old colleague of mine. And when she took the stand and talked about sexual infidelity, she, there was this moment where Jean asked her, and what happened? What did you see? And she said, my face was down in the dirt. All I could see was the feet of the people around me. And then I heard the sound of the stones dropping. And this was an atrium of our, our, our law school. and It was completely silent. And Jean asked, what had happened? And she pointed at the, the student we had playing Jesus and said, he came. And everybody looked at this, this guy and it was as if Jesus was there. It was an incredible moment. You wrote in the book in reflecting on moments like this that, that you think that that is what church should be like, that the moments like that where we're, we're stunned silent and where we're deeply confronted and where we walk away troubled, that really should be the task of of our liturgy. Am, yes. I, am I remembering that correctly? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, you know, so often we walk out of church and we're, you know, <laughs> kind of critiquing the sermon or saying which song, which hymn was most pleasant. That's not how anybody walked away from Jesus. They walked away deeply troubled or full of joy or in, in singing or they walked away in despair. I mean the rich young ruler. You know, there, there are churches here. There's churches. The church I attend is full of rich young rulers and they don't walk out of church the way the rich young ruler walked away from Jesus. They walk away feeling pretty good. And all of us in our own way are rich young rulers. Um, and unfortunately, church too rarely provides that. If you're just joining us, we're speaking today with Mark Osler. He's professor of law at the University of St. Thomas Law School in Minnesota. He's a graduate of the College of William and Mary and the Yale Law School. Professor Osler is a former federal prosecutor whose work has consistently confronted the problem of inflexibility and sentencing and corrections. Uh, he's the author of the 2009 book, Jesus on Death Row, and the recent book, Prosecuting Jesus. And that's what we're discussing today. So if I'm hearing you correctly, the proper role of church, if it's really done right, 
should be to trouble us to the point where we want to kill the guy that we've just come to worship. Am I hearing that right? <laughs> well, no, I, 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 I don't think we should want to kill Jesus. But I think that too often we see Jesus as the person who tells us what we're doing is pretty much right. If we read the Gospels honestly, there's a challenge for all of us. There's a challenge for all of us there. And in the ministry, one of the problems is that it's very difficult for ministers to maintain their numbers and maintain their finances if they're constantly challenging people. And so what we end up with are hollowed-out churches, churches that are hollowed out of meaning, hollowed out of Jesus, because they're not willing to, to challenge us all. It's not just the rich who need to be challenged. It's, it's all of us. And preparing for this interview, uh, one of the things that I read about you was a description that said that to evangelicals, you are too progressive. And among progressive Christians, you are too evangelical. I felt a, a resonance with that description. I, I don't quite know how to describe myself. Oftentimes I'll say, if you want to know if I'm conservative, I barely made it out of the fourth century theologically. But I also, when you sit me down with evangelicals, I, I tend to make their hair go on fire because of some of the things that I want to see manifested out of the Gospels in the world. And I'm just wondering, how do you strike that balance? How do you think about your place in the wider Christian sphere? Because it must be difficult. It's difficult for me. I imagine it's difficult for you to not have a, a good label you can attach onto. How do you wrestle with that? You know, I... I, I I found it to be more of a positive than a negative because people don't pigeonhole me in any sense. I mean, sometimes they do, but then it doesn't seem to fit. You know, I'm not very clearly denominational and I'm not, I'm not a minister. Um, you know, I'm a layperson. I, I give sermons three or four times a year. But when I do it, I'm always very careful not to sit up. I sit in the pews and when the time comes for the sermon, I walk up from the back um, just to recognize that that's, that's my role. I'm not someone who's made the sacrifices that ministers have for their ministry. Um, but yeah, there, in terms of, for example, the places that we were able to do the trial, places like Regent uh, University uh, or Fuller Seminary in Pasadena, we were able to do that because we were presenting something that was about Jesus. And there's an openness to that. There's that circle that's drawn around us all that that people are open to, and one of the things is that it, going, you know, the the book recounts all the different places we went from the far left to the far right, really, and, and from all the parts of this nation, um, is that amongst Christ followers of whatever brand, uh, we were within that circle where we were going to start with the Gospels, and that is something that you don't need uh, an MDiv for, that you don't need to have been a lifelong Catholic for. Um, and that's a wonderful thing about the faith that, that I've chosen. If you're just joining us, we're speaking today with Mark Osler. He's the author of the 2009 book, Jesus on Death Row, and the recent book, Prosecuting Jesus. And that's what we're discussing today. You mentioned earlier that you, you spent time with the Quakers. And one of the, the tenets of, of Quakerism is you listen to the calling and you discern the leading and you follow that leading because you believe that in some way that that leading is of God. And it always happens in a in a dialogical fashion. You, you don't just stand up someday in a Quaker meeting and say, ah, I've got the wisdom and I've got the truth and now I'm going to go running. You have to bring that to the community and season it. And so I, I want to ask you about your own personal journey of discernment. I mean, clearly you have been listening 
and you have followed what you've been listening to in terms of kind of how you've proceeded. But I, I wonder if you could talk to us just sort of how you personally have been listening to the call and seasoning the call and eventually living the call. Yeah, I, we often – it's in those still small moments, isn't it, that if we if we have a little time of quiet, then – it becomes clearer because we're we're with ourselves. I mean, for for me, it, it may sound trite, but there's something about fishing <laughs> that I I go up fishing with my my dad, my family, and you're in a boat. You're you're Peter. You're Andrew, and in those still small moments, it doesn't matter whether you're a law professor and you have a chair. It doesn't matter you're male or female or or whatever. You're a fisherman. I think to properly discern, the first step is humbling yourself. And that, that's been true for me anyways. I can't speak for others. Um, if there were, were to hear God, we have to strip away the things that we're proudest of. And often that's going to take us in directions that won't feed our pride. That can be hard. These are some of the persons that have helped to season this process for you. As, you, as you've had this leading to move away from working as a prosecutor to now begin to create this, this confrontation in which you're trying to, to bring Jesus as an embodied reality to congregations, who have been some of your conversation partners that have really helped to season you in, in, in the wisdom of this? There, there have been a number. I think that a couple that come right to mind is, is one of my professors, Dr. Joanne Braxton at William & Mary. She was taught my African-American literature class. She's a black poet from Maryland. She was the first teacher who ever really challenged me in, in terms of my identity. You know, in, in class, it was a, a plurality or a majority of, of black students. And she always had me read the slaveholder parts when we were doing, doing things. And I, that seemed unfair to me. But I realized later what that was doing, that it was, it was about role. It was about identity and having to confront that. Um, she's a minister herself now, and I still work with her closely. You know, what I often need isn't reassurance. I need someone to say, you've got to go farther. And and she's someone who's been a really, really helpful, especially recently on that. And then there's been unexpected moments. You know, you get humbled at the right time sometimes. And one of the things that's in the book that was kind of amazing is, is in 2008, uh, there was a the, the New Baptist Covenant was a movement to bring back together black and white Baptists who hadn't met together in over a century. And so I was asked to speak at it. Now, the the big speakers, Bill Clinton and Jimmy Carter and Martin Marty and those guys, they were all in the the big Georgia Congress Center, the main auditorium. And I was down in sub-basement D and giving my talk about crack. Uh, But my parents came down, which was great. And, and, you know, it's a pretty full room in sub-basement D anyways. And, and, I, I'm giving my talk and about five minutes in, Jimmy Carter walks in with his Secret Service agent and sat down in the row with my parents. We always have fantasies in those moments that, that you're going to get done. And I could see Jimmy Carter standing and saying, you know, I I love what you've had to say and I, I think that's great and whatever I can do to support your work. And my parents would be so proud of me. Well, that was the fantasy. What really happened was I got done and Jimmy Carter stood up. And I was, I was thinking, it's coming true. <laughs> I'm living, I'm living the dream. But what he said was, "You academics, you write and you write and write. What are you going to do about this social injustice? You know, if we believe this, if we believe these gospels, what are we going to do 
and it was humbling. You know, I could see my parents moving down a couple rows and I feel like they didn't, you know, weren't necessarily going to claim me, but it was exactly right. And so in terms of discernment, that humbling, even being humbled by the powerful can be a great thing. Imagine that there's a great deal of frustration that goes into the work that you're doing because you're pushing up against stereotypes and embedded sort of expectations. And so I wonder what is it that keeps you hopeful? Well, the successes. <laughs> you know, I mean that 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 sometimes it works. A lot of times it doesn't. I was I was telling someone last week that I feel like the guy in the the lifeboat. You know, I'm the the I'm, rowing around, pulling people in, but mostly I see the people who are still in the water. But I can't I can't discount the great joy of when it works. Um, two weeks ago, I got a call from Washington and it was the pardon attorney saying three of the people that I'd advocated for for years were getting clemency. And what happens next is that I call them and tell them. All three of them were doing life terms and now are going to get out. And I call them and tell them that uh, and it was such joy. I mean, just uh, in in my own heart and and in theirs. But it's just an incredible thing. And if you see that happen, you see that act of grace and mercy and redemption. You want more. Well, Mark Osler, I've really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you for the work that you're doing, and thank you for speaking to us. No, thank you. It's been a pleasure. We've been speaking today with Mark Osler. He's Robert and Marion Short Chair of Law at the University of St. Thomas. He's a professor whose work advocates for sentencing and clemency policies rooted in principles of human dignity. He's a former federal prosecutor and played a role in striking down the mandatory 100 to 1 ratio between crack and powder cocaine in the federal sentencing guidelines. He did that by winning the case of Spears versus the United States in the U.S. Supreme Court. We've been talking about his work, and in 2009, he wrote a book, Jesus on Death Row, and we've been speaking particularly about his most recent book, Prosecuting Jesus. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC, with the support of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keija. David Dalt engineered the show. Kim Tron and David Dalt did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badnock. Taylor Gould is our intern this year. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about upcoming guests. That's Facebook.com slash Things Not Seen Radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and learn more about our guests if you visit us on the web at ThingsNotSeenRadio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us. We'll be right back.